Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Natalie Haynes returns to Little Atoms to talk about her latest novel, The Children of Jocasta. Natalie Haynes is a writer and broadcaster. She is the author of The Amber Fury, which was shortlisted for the Scottish Crime Book of the Year Award, and a non-fiction book about ancient history, The Ancient Guide to Modern Life, both of which we've talked about on Little Atoms previously. She has written and presented two series of the BBC Radio 4 show, Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics. In 2015, she was awarded the Classical Association Prize for her work in bringing classics to a wider audience. And Natalie's latest book, The Children of Jocasta, we're going to be talking about today. Natalie, welcome back to Little Atom. Thanks for having me back in your fancy new studio. Indeed. It's lovely. The Children of Jocasta is... I mean, to cut a long story short, it's a retelling of the Oedipus myth. Yes. But different. Yes. Sarah Um, Churchwell, who I know is a good friend to Little Atoms, I think coined, but... Uh, she may just have read it somewhere, but I'm going to say she coined because it's so brilliant. It must be her. Um, the phrase counter-mythical for mm-hmm. it. So as a sort of parallel to counterfactual history, a counter-mythical telling of the Oedipus story. Yeah. So why did you want to retell it? Why did you want to do the counter-mythical? Well, I suppose in the first instance, I wanted to tell it because I think it is a genuinely great story, fully separately from being a you know seminal myth in a kind of history of ourselves. It's not an accident that Freud you know was drawn to it. It's, it's full of archetypes which are integral to how we define ourselves and how we think. It seems to me, and you get sort of variations of this story told throughout the ages. So there's that, but it felt to me like it was particularly ripe for a retelling because if you go through the the most famous version is obviously the Sophocles version, Oedipus the King, Oedipus Tyrannus in Greek, um, bafflingly by people called Oedipus Rex, although it isn't Latin and he's not a dinosaur, I've never understood it. But in that version, Jocasta has 120 lines, and that's not even 10% of the whole. You know, the central figure, of course, in that version is Oedipus, although it's not, of course, I suppose, the central figure in Antigone, you'd think would therefore be Antigone, and she isn't in terms of line count, it's her uncle, Crayon. Um, but Jocasta doesn't have very much to say in that, and Greek tragedy, and I adore it in almost all its forms, as you know, um, has no subtext. It's mm-hmm. one of the things about it. We're going to have to wait till like Chekhov to get a subtext. In Greek tragedy, nobody you know wishes they could go to Moscow and then goes off stage and shoots themselves in the head. They just come on stage and go, I'm furious, here is why. And so actually writing a novel around a tragedy or taking a tragedy to for want of a less revolting verb, novelise it, is a really tempting thing to do because none of these characters has an inner life that we ever see on stage. You know, We get their big monologues and that's the closest we get to their thought process but it's performed 
you know, both uh, performed and performative, I suppose. So it felt too tempting to fill in the gaps of who this woman was who ends up I mean it's quite an extraordinary story that we mainly get it from Oedipus's perspective in the surviving versions of the story that we have it just seemed to me you know too ripe to take it well you mentioned the idea of Chekhov and subtext and having to wait centuries and centuries and millennia really Mm. until that sort of thing comes along and there are other ways in which this is a modernization yes of the story and by that I don't mean this is you know like they do with Shakespeare, Oedipus set it's in space or dress. something. Yeah. <laughs> um, Dad but, would have been so happy if I'd set in space. <laughs> <laughs> there are, um, that's next. That's, My that's brother would have read it if I'd set it in space. <laughs> so there's there's two parallel stories here. There's the story of Jocasta and the story of her daughter, Ismene. Yes. And that story is told in the first person, which yes. is obviously something that didn't exist when people were telling these myths. Um, yeah, I, well, I suppose I suppose so. But, I mean, in, there are moments in the Odyssey, for example, which is by far more complicated in terms of its structure than the Iliad, although the Iliad is my favourite. The Odyssey is by far the more complex in terms of leaping through time, you know, the flashback sections and things like that. And then you'll get quite long sections where Odysseus will explain to, you know, Alcinous or, you know, how he got to here. So, in a way, I suppose, that's a sort of an early version of the first person narrative obviously again it's performed because Homer is singing rather than writing and all of those things all those caveats in place and sorry she's a Latin word about a Greek thing um, I shoot self in the head sorry sorry um, but allowing for that I didn't feel like that was too anachronistic overall I think and so the other obvious difference which you've already hinted at is that this is the book it's called The Children of Jocasta this is the story of Oedipus but told from the perspective of women who in the original versions and we'll come back to the word versions a bit later on in the in the interview and the word original (laughs) (laughs) perhaps we should yes so why tell it from the women's perspective just because it had been so overlooked and that's not at all i mean i i believe that all myth when you tell it it belongs both in the time in which it's set and in the time in which it's told and i think that's always true so i guess when you say original version of oedipus you probably mean sophocles but of course he's not the original version the earliest version that we have i think is the odyssey uh, i think it's book 11 where odysseus goes to the underworld and it's just 10 lines so it's incredibly slight but therefore what we would tend to see as you know the sort of the official version of this story um, is a retelling. And you can tell because the Sophoclean version is full of obsession about fatherhood and and whether you can be certain that a child is your own. It's, that belongs very much in the 5th century when it's being written rather than perhaps in the mythic time in which it's set. So when you or I go to see a contemporary production, say the Ray Fiennes version at the National Theatre a few years ago, we're watching a 21st century English translation of a 5th century BC Greek translation of a of a much earlier Greek story. And so we watch a translator then spin this story into a, a 21st century version. But even if even if I went to see it in Greek now, um, I've seen Antigone in Greek, I don't think I've ever seen the um, OT in Greek, but if you were to go and see it in Greek, you'd still be, it would still be a, a translation of an earlier story. And so in Homer's version, Jocasta doesn't ha- even have that name. She's called Epicast. The integral part or an integral part of their story that mother and son marry 
unknowingly and then it becomes clear that that has happened is still there but although she has as she does in the Sophoclean version although she has committed suicide Oedipus has not one of the most famous things about him he's not blinded himself in Homer's version that's not there at all he's still ruling Thebes he's not banished and he's not blinded so it's one of those strange things where I, I set out thinking how am I going to tell a story that's that everyone knows the ending to, and then realised not only did everyone not know the ending, but I didn't either. That, in fact, there were so many versions of, of these stories, and the versions that have survived happen to be the versions which are relatively male-centric. But actually, the, the that very earliest bit in the Odyssey is the bit which is always described in translations as Odysseus, and I quote, meetings with famous women. <laughs> so in that version, at least, the focus is on her, Calais and Epicastane, beautiful mm-hmm. Epicast. And uh, an Oedipus is is off the... He is, he's not in the scene. You know, he's he's in the wings, I guess, or, or, or behind the, the scenery. Not that they had scenery, but you know what I mean. I'm Andy Miller, and you are listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. You talk about, you know, again, debating the word original, the Odysseus version, the Odyssey version, and then Sophocles. But I was reading the novel and not having your classical education was was quite pleased with myself to notice that you'd switch some of the roles around. I did, and you did notice it. And I have to put this on the record that I saw you before you'd read the afterword, uh, in which I gave some of the things away. Uh, well, yeah, so then I... You know, and you had seen them before you read that. And then That's I was disappointed true. to discover that there is actually just multiple versions and this is the thing that people do. That those roles are regularly swapped around, not even just necessarily in multiple tellings of the story but obviously in in different settings that's the thing that happens yeah absolutely and I think it's it's one of those it's one of those questions that that I didn't really consider until I did the first interview about this book and the journalist said you know so the story is has such an inevitability to it and I thought no Sophocles has that that's all you're you're massively underselling his skill if we say, oh, the story just is, of course it isn't. You know, it's him. That's him who did that. I saw a version of Oedipus a few years ago, somewhere in London, and I can't remember where, um, but one of those little theatres in Covent Garden, um, not on the West End, and they did um, a version of Oedipus, which was the first act, Oedipus the King, the Sophocles version, and the second act, a contemporary version in which Oedipus and Laius, um, the former king of Thebes, meet at the crossroads, the place where three roads meet, and they have the argument, which should culminate in Oedipus killing Laius and you know all terrible things ensuing, but instead of that, they work out who each other is. And so what you get instead is this is this very dialogic, very, you know, t- almost a two-hander of these two men trying to unpick who they are to each other and why it matters and who's in the right and who's in the wrong. And it was brilliant. But obviously, you could quite legitimately say these people have got the story wrong. They have got the story wrong. You know what happens. He kills him and that's what happens. But it was wonderful. And I suppose there's something... Because the story is so solid and because it's because it has that incredible narrative pressure that we know something terrible has happened, we know we've got to get to the end. And it is, you know, watching the or, or, or reading Sophocles' version, it's like being, you know, in a, on a freight train. It's like being pulled along millennia before freight trains existed. Um, you're being forced down these tracks that you can't possibly deviate from. But actually, there is something. There is a lot more. There's a lot more space in the story than Sophocles would have you believe because that's his gift, is to make it seem inevitable. There's a reason why Aristotle cited it as structurally the greatest tragedy in terms of its sort of, what's the word I want, like plausibility maybe? It isn't the greatest tragedy. Obviously, it's full of coincidences because everything has to happen on the same. The same person has to have been both witness to the killing of Laius and the person who took a baby out of Thebes years earlier. And so 
it isn't in terms of its kind of coherence the most beautiful but structurally you can't deny it and so the joy of writing it from the women's perspectives is that Sophocles hadn't you know that there was that room there to do it because he had not done it Ismene has 60 lines in the Antigone and even Antigone isn't the lead in Antigone as I say she has two-thirds the number of lines of her uncle of crayon and I had cheerfully got through my whole classical education not ever noticing that which just goes to show how quick we are to assume that men are you know allowed more words than women and don't get to be the lead i've, I've been presuming it was creon and the fact that his name is actually crayon is mm. hilarious yeah creon is fine too but i always do, yeah no i don't know why like, i would say medea too but not medea but yeah no, but I'm now picturing like wax know, crayons. Yeah, yeah, perfectly reasonable. Yeah, but yes, you're right. Of course, it is spelled C R E O N. So and to well, say as well, completely pointlessly now because we've we've already been over the point repeatedly. But before I read the book, I was thinking about oh, what could, you know, you, you always think about what things you can talk about. And one of the things I was thinking was oh, great, we can talk about how do you write a story that everybody basically knows what happens. But it didn't occur to me until surprisingly far through, uh, shamingly far through. I kind of, I knew what I was going to do with the ending of the Oedipus story. And I thought as I was doing it, you know, but everyone knows this. So I'll have to find a way of sort of disguising it or or using a little bit of misdirection so that you're um, wrong footed at least. Otherwise it won't be as compelling. And then I discovered Everyone, in fact, does not know <laughs> the story of Oedipus. Everyone you know knows the story of Oedipus, but it turns out there are loads of people, loads of people who studied classics, loads of people who did, you know, a Greek tragedy paper at college, but that was, you know, a while ago and so on, who have forgotten the story or who don't know that it is only one version. And as for the Antigone, almost no one, it seems, knows the plot of the Antigone. I mean, the good news for me is that it, it was a set text for people doing class civ this year. So lots of students know it, but generally lots of adults don't it's just not although it's performed quite often it's just not such a well-known play I guess and and not a byword in the way that you know an Oedipal complex is a byword that the Antigone complex isn't a thing should be but it's not um, so that was that story was always much more open to being told differently but I was a long way through it before I realized that the version that I was actually telling and I beseech you not to go and Google it um, because it will just spoil the ending for you um, was Euripides' version of Antigone rather than Sophocles of which only 40 lines survive so yeah that's the that's the version of Antigone I told and I thought as I was doing it for ages oh this is going to seem so you know radical and everyone's going to be really cross with me for changing the story and I thought oh no Euripides did it already <laughs> damn it and how long has this the idea of redoing this story been how long have you been working on it how long has this been going around in your Ooh, mind um, I guess I started writing it Wow, about th three years ago? Can that be true? A bit less than three years ago. Yeah, maybe about yeah, about three years. And I guess I'd been thinking about it for a, a few months before before I started work on it. So, yeah, I suppose I Amber came out three years ago, and I suppose I was thinking about it then, but I certainly hadn't started writing it at that point, um, mainly because I was criminally insane from having been judging the booker forever. And uh, so, yeah, I could barely think about a book, uh, and I got that facial tick, you might remember. But, uh, yeah, no, I suppose it must have been that, that autumn or something that I started work on it. And we talked about why recast it from the position of the women characters, but also does that change the meaning in any way? Is there a different reading of, of the book if it's coming from that perspective, do you I think? I think there absolutely is. I mean, at the most basic level with Jocasta, we are told over and over again about Oedipus that he is smart, that he's clever, we know that because he has the he, he has won the role of king in a battle of wits. You know, he famously solves the Sphinx's riddle, which is, of course, utterly impossible for anyone to ever solve. No one is going to you know, be faced with a 
strange monster that goes, what's got four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, three legs in the evening, and go, it is man, and then walk into it. Everybody will go, hmm? Uh, uh, even when you know the answer, what, a stick? A stick isn't a leg, what are you talking about, etc. Um, so he is famously wily. And the play, of course, opens, Sophocles' play opens, with the citizens of Thebes coming to him and saying, look, this plague, what are you going to do about it? And his, his sort of opening gambit is to say, I've already acted, I've sent my brother-in-law, Crayon, uh, away to... Uh, the Oracle at Delphi to find out what we should be doing. So we, the very first thing we see of him is that he's he's faster than his citizens. He's already worked out what the problem is. He's worked it out so much earlier than them. He's already sent his brother-in-law away. His brother-in-law's practically back because the play has unity of time, so it all has to happen in one day. Hurry, hurry. And so it is interesting, therefore, that Jocasta works out the truth of what has happened before Oedipus does in that play and yet no one ever says she's clever not once not one time so she is pretty canny this lady it never happens because she's got such a minor role she's a supporting role and so it was enormously tempting therefore to take on the role of Jocasta and put her in the centre of a narrative because I knew she'd be clever and also she has such an interesting attitude to the gods which seems really anachronistic and as I was writing I was thinking you know this is going to be reviewed by religious people who'll be furious with me Um, but she She's consistently very sceptical about the gods. Not sceptical, I guess, that they exist, but sceptical that they have any interest in us, any influence Mm -hmm. over us. And then only very late in the story, only very late in her story, does she suddenly... What is it? Nobody's an atheist in a foxhole or everybody is. But when things become very, very stressful for her, then she kind of says, you know, she calls on the gods for help. But up to that point, she's been extremely sceptical. And that seemed to me incredibly interesting, this clever, brittle, rational woman that existed, you know, a small role in, in Sophocles' version. I'm like, well, that can't help but be fun to write, can it? It just can't help it. And as many as um, the, the first-person narrative, she's such a voice of reason in, in the Sophoclean version. And in that version, she is the younger sister. But in the Anoui version, the Jean Anoui version from 1943, I'm going to say, but it might be 42, 20th century times are much uh, harder for me to remember than uh, 5th century BCE times. Um, in that version, this, their birth order is swapped around. So for Anoui, Antigone is the sort of rebel younger sister. But for Sophocles, the, a girl doing the exact same thing is a pious, dutiful older sister. Mm-hmm. So I like the idea that Ismene and Antigone could their um, kind of level of responsibility or rebelliousness could be as it could be changed as simply as by saying she's older or she's younger so that that just seemed to me there was so much scope to fill in as many that I couldn't resist her when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at bluenile.com you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listen to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Natalie Haynes about her latest novel, The Children of Jocasta. And, well, we've talked about the two main characters and the characters that you've changed the focus of the book to, to sort of concentrate on Jocasta and his mania. Tell us about some of the other characters in the book. So you've mentioned Crayon. Yes. Who is Jocasta's brother. Yes. Ismene's uncle. Yes. Who is he? Well, he is... In the context of this story, I suppose, anachronisms all please to be excused, he's Stalin. Um, he is this totally controlling king, not in Jocasta's timeline. Uh, I don't want to give too much away, but uh, of course, um, when the terrible revelations of Jocasta and Oedipus uh, marriage uh, come true, then he is who takes over and becomes king. And he becomes more and more controlling. He should have just a sort of a kind of guardianship role for the two brothers, for Polynices and Eteocles. And we certainly get that version in, I'm going to say, The Seven Against Thebes by Aeschylus. But I there's also a version by Euripides. Come on, brain. Sorry, I haven't got it. Um, um, you certainly mentioned The Seven Against Thebes one, which is where it's more a civil war. It is a full-scale yeah. civil war, yeah. And I wanted very much for this, for this novel to feel like a tragedy, i.e. to have just really, not quite, but virtually one set. So it gets mm-hmm. more and more claustrophobic as time goes on. So I, I took that civil war out from seven people storming the seven gates of Thebes and brought the whole thing right into the centre, into the um, Acropolis of Thebes, as it were, the high point of the city, um, because I really wanted it to have that claustrophobic, tight focus. It was very much something that I wanted the the kind of character of the book to be. So Crayon has this... I mean, he he certainly likes power, but in theory he is a, you know, he's a dutiful brother to Jocasta, and he's a, you know, he's a good uncle, he's a good father to his son, um, and he is trying to bring stability to a city which has been ravaged by plague multiply and also ravaged by by civil war. But he, he becomes, as people often do when they have absolute power, he is damaged and, and further damaged by it. And his desire to retain that power becomes a distortion of, I think, he is an essentially decent man. And his story runs between the two narratives, the third person and the first person. So he has sort of, we're in his company for longest. And... I have long thought that the tragedy, that Sophocles' tragedy, Antigone, is is Crayon's tragedy because he is the one. Spoiler: um, he is the one who, to whom all all terrible damage is done. You know, by the end of the play, almost no one that he loves is left standing. And the that moment where the chorus comes and says, "You know, I hope you've learned something from this." <laughs> so too late now is his. So he is the one who has to live with the sort of terrible consequences of what he's done. And so I hope that this book gives you a 
a way of understanding how an essentially decent, upright man could become so corrupted over time and with power. And you say he's the person that's on stage for the longest in, mm. in this retelling. But there's another character that's a thread through both of the narratives and the beginning and the end, which is Sophon. Yes. So tell us who he is. So he is um, the aged retainer slash doctor who uh, Jocasta meets very early on. And of course, he is a little nod to Sophocles with his name, um, which simply means wise in Greek. So um, he is an archetypally wise old man. He's not old when we meet him, but of course people seemed older younger i think not not just because the enormous quantity of dead people in the in the ancient world means that the average age was average life expectancy was so young there were quite a lot of old men of course socrates is 70 when he dies sophocles was in his 80s i think uh, mid 80s when he dies but it seemed to me that the role of this older man who could connect Jocasta and her daughter and Ismene by having been present at these sort of crucial episodes in their lives but equally crucially removed from the power that he is an advisor he, he can never sort of step in and, and save anyone or do very much he, ha- he can only really offer a commentary so his role is somewhere between informant and chorus I guess and uh, and so he is just a little way of putting the playwright back in the mix and Teresa, as I'm sure you noticed, um, who is the housekeeper when Jocasta first arrives in the royal palace of Thebes, um, is a little nod to Tiresias, who spends, uh, we're told by him in, I've forgotten which version, is it Hesiod, that he has spent seven years as a woman. Um, and I thought, well, Tiresias, Tiresia, yeah, Teresa will do, I think, as a is an easier to say name. I wanted the names to be easy to say because I think I have a terrible tendency when I'm reading Russian books, for example, to just sound basically the first syllable and the last letter in my head. And I do it over and over again. And I think lots of people when faced with Polynices and Eteocles and names like that do the same thing. Um, so generally the siblings are known in Izzy's narrative, um, Ismene's <coughs> narrative, by a long name. In a Russian narrative or even German, to be honest, I'm, I'm put off by a long name because those aren't languages that I know. So in Ismene's narrative, she refers to Polynices as Pollen, Eteocles as Etio. So I hope that it makes it a bit less like, oh, not another name. I mean, even even with a degree in Greek, which I do technically have, I still find myself watching a play going, right, Polydorus, Polyxena, Polymestor. Seriously, guys, <laughs> could we pick a different first sound? So I, I wanted to make it a bit easier to read, I guess. And also, so Antigone is, is Annie, and that yes. also has the function of... Well, it sort of disguises them a little bit as well, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, it does a little bit. So I hope it comes as a slight. I hope it comes as a slight surprise. I think. I mean, not from people who are listening to this, obviously, but um, you should be able to get through a, a few tens of pages before you realise that the, the two timelines are running consecutively, rather than you, it should take a while before you realise that the connecting tissue is is the palace, its place, rather than time. And I want to move us on to Thebes, the place. Yes. So this is it's obviously a Greek city state. Yes. I just presume they were always like by the sea. Yes. Obviously there was all this, you know, they trade all seem going like on they would and be, stuff. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Thebes is this place that's like a good hundred miles inland. Yes. And you've got what's the other place? Not Delphi. Where does um Oedipus Corinth. come from? Corinth is the yeah, the other city state which is he on the is coast. By the sea, yeah. And um one of the things you do, again, one of the things that's how much we can say about this really, but um one of the the sort of modernisations you mentioned the middle of the Sphinx. Yes. And you update that story I a do. little bit, which yeah. I thought I thought it was really much more interesting and much more plausible. Thanks. Yeah, no, I rationalised the Sphinx um, in the spirit of, of the rationalists. I made the Sphinx a more rational thing. I, I have long thought that there's scope for gods and monsters, but I very much wanted this book to be quite a 
uh, sceptical book, I suppose. So the gods are treated with considerable scepticism by virtually everyone in this book. And the people who, who believe in them wholeheartedly are generally gullible or dubious let's say um, not because that's how I personally feel about uh, people who believe in gods you understand but because within the context of this story that's very much how I wanted to tell it and I did want to demonsterize the story I wanted it to be a, a human tragedy for want of a better phrase rather than a one where a, a monster could I mean the thing is once you've got a monster who can ask a quizzical set of questions and then chomp you up then how much tension is there in the rest of the book? Do you know what I mean? Because it could always just come back and eat you. And then you get into that glorious Eddie Izzard territory of Tales of the Unexpected where a man opens a door and a pig eats him because no one can write in and say, I totally expected the pig eating him incident. And so I very much didn't want it to be the case that a man could open a door and a pig could eat him. And that's why the Sphinx got changed. And the other thing that's, that's overlaying the entire story and continuously comes back and plays the role, obviously brings back the idea of the people that are the ones that believe in, in the fates and the gods, is that there's this plague that's threatening all the time. Yes. And that, I mean, I think that is very, it's very difficult, isn't it, thinking about plague in, in terms of what it must have been like before you knew what it was. And if I had to say what my kind of foundational text was for it, in terms of the symptoms, it's Thucydides. Um, Thucydides, a historian, 5th century Greek, 5th century Athenian, who lives through the Great Plague of Athens, which strikes at the very start of the Peloponnesian War in 431-430, and writes Pericles' great funeral oration in, uh, I think it's two, book 265, I think, in which he addresses the people of Athens on the uh, occasion of them burying their collective war and plague dead. Uh, he himself, Pericles, would, would shortly die of plague, unfortunately. Um, and Thucydides had the plague and recovered from it. And so he can detail the symptoms quite specifically, almost all of which I purloined wholesale uh, for this plague in Thebes. So it's out by you know 700 years and a couple of hundred miles, but um, it is an ancient plague told by one of its survivors. But the sort of the sense of terrible crushing fear and also of, of a sense that the fates might have it in for you or uh, the gods might have it in for you, but that you wouldn't know until it was too late is, I think, almost entirely stolen um, from Mark Ravenhill's opera. Is that the word I want? Or musical, I guess, or uh, with Mark Almond, which was called, I think, Ten Plagues, um, was unbelievably moving. I remember seeing it in Edinburgh a few years ago and was unbelievably moving, this, this sort of terrible sense of you know death stalking the streets and just people not knowing what was going to become of them. And so I very much wanted that sense of of crushing fear and a, and, and a sense that you, you needed to hide but you didn't know where to hide or what you were hiding from. I'm Charlotte Higgins and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So yeah, sticking with Thebes. Yes. Um, as you, you mentioned earlier in the interview that you wanted the, you know, the setting of this, the, the, the claustrophobic atmosphere of the story to be sort of contained further and further as they become like, as the characters become more and more imprisoned in the smaller and smaller parts yes. of the of the palace. Tell us something about that palace, researching what that palace would have been like. Well, the palace is partly stolen from Crete, I'm afraid. Um, the uh, remains that exist at Thebes are not particularly well-preserved. There's not very many of them. Uh, there is a museum in Thebes which has just reopened, I think, or in the last six months or so reopened, but had been closed for seven years because, you know, Greek financial woes have been sufficient that it, I think it closed for a refurb and then they couldn't get the money together to reopen it, I think. And so um, this Thebes is a sort of combination of Crete um, and Knossos particularly. But uh, if you look at uh, artist recreations of Knossos, it has multiple flaws. I mean, the Greeks are much more architecturally sophisticated, um, even 
at this period, which is sort of the 12th, 13th century BCE, the, the Bronze Age, the Heroic Age. And I I very much wanted it to have a, a slightly more stage set feel. So it's on one floor. I've reduced it down. And I was like, well, I could add in some stairs. And I just can't keep it all in my head. <laughs> so so um, it's, a, it's a treble courtyard. There's a big public courtyard, a big public space. And then a sort of like a professional courtyard. The second courtyard is where, you know, kingly ruling business takes place, or in Jogasta's case, queenly ruling business takes place. Um, and then at the back, there is this private courtyard that just belongs to the family. Um, and where that is where Izzy is supposed to be. And that is, again, it's, it's a sign that this book is sort of operating in between the the time in which it's set and the time in which Sophocles is writing because of course in the time in which it's set women you know royal women like Medea can go off and do whatever the hell they like for the most part and in the time in which he is writing Athenian women can do literally nothing they're, they're cloistered you know they're stuck behind high walls all day every day and it sounds like an incredibly boring existence so poor Ismene is caught in between these two worlds you know she's had a a life of incredible privilege in which, you know, obviously she doesn't have to go and, you know, make shoes or sew things or uh, weave or spin, uh, which lots of women would have had to have done. But the flip side is that her her world gets smaller and smaller as the book goes on. So her existence becomes more and more claustrophobic. And so I hope it has the sort of uh, it has a sort of mixed heritage of being a real palace and a stage set version of one. Just one more thing from me then, and then we'll um, so get you to read a little bit. <laughs> um, what's next? Uh, Troy is next. The women of Troy come next for me. So, yes, uh, I have to finish being on the road for this book. I've been on the road for a couple of months. I've got a couple more months to go talking about it and talking about Greek tragedy and um, and in particular the, the sort of foundational myths of Thebes and things, which is joyous for me. Um, but, yeah, I think July probably is when I'll get back to um, to the Trojan women. If you would kindly read us a little bit. I will read you a little bit. I will read it from the very start because I'm extremely small C conservative when it comes to reading and I always worry if... uh... Oh, should I tell you what the dedication is? I normally do this on your programme, don't I? Um, So uh, I dedicate all my books to Dan because he is a saintly saint, a secular saint is what he is, um, and without him, etc, etc. And I always pick a bit, or recently I've picked a bit from Antigone, which is quite difficult because it's not a very romantic play. So in the, for Amber, I, I stole a bit of Antigone, um, which was directed as an insult, uh, and I repurposed it, and I've done the exact same thing here. In fact, it's from only a few lines after that uh, quote. So this is the, an argument between Creon and his son, Hymon, and uh, in fury, Creon says, as Hymon defends Antigone's position, he says, Hogun logos soi pas super kenes hode. Every word you say is on behalf of that woman. Um, so I thought I would go with that because he is a staunch defender, as all good partners should be, of course, irrespective of sex. I will read you from Izzy, if that's all right, because she's more fun for me to read by virtue of the fact that she is uh, in the first person. And the book begins with her reading a parchment scroll in a sort of dark corner of the courtyard. Um, I should tell you that this is before alphabetic writing, so she must be reading in either Linear A or Linear B. Um, But her great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Cadmus was the mythical inventor of the alphabet, so I'm afraid I couldn't resist having her reading. But at some point someone will write in and go, I think you'll find. And then I will have the restraint not to write back and go, well, I think you'll find. It's an adorable and hilarious joke, because it won't be an adorable and hilarious joke, and they will just steal my lunch money. So uh, she has been reading and then she is disturbed by um, the presence of a stranger. We were the exact same height, so our eyes met for a moment. His were a watery sort of grey with two brown specks in the right iris. It made it look like a bird's egg. 
I should keep running into the courtyard, I thought, and then out the other side, through to the next square where my brothers and my uncle would be. I could return the manuscript to Sophon and apologise for taking it without asking. He wouldn't mind. But even as I was thinking this, it occurred to me that perhaps my legs wouldn't carry me as far as the second courtyard. I was standing in the beating sun, but I was cold. The man looked past me for a second, though there was no one behind me. Then his eyes met mine. Wordless, he turned and walked away. I thought perhaps I might sit on the ground. I took a few more steps and fell to my knees just before I was fully in the courtyard. A girl I didn't recognise, the daughter of one of the house slaves, I suppose, was coming out of a bedroom, carrying a tray. The noise of me falling, my thick silver bangle crashing onto the ground, made her turn and she screamed, dropping what she was carrying everywhere. Hollow wooden things, cups maybe, or bowls. I heard them bounce and crash across the warm grey slabs. I hissed at her to be quiet, but she was too far away. And besides, she was making so much noise herself, she wouldn't have heard anything I said. The light was so bright it made me want to close my eyes. I saw the shadows of birds flying across the square, but I couldn't raise my head to see the birds themselves. After a long time, or perhaps no time at all, I heard voices, but they all sounded strange, distorted, as though I were hearing them underwater. I blinked, but my eyes wouldn't quite focus. There were guards and servants and then my brothers, everyone running towards me. They were shouting, I could see from their flushed faces, but I could barely make out what they were saying. It sounded like they'd killed her. Killed who? There was only one person left in my family that could possibly mean my sister Annie. Please don't let it be Annie, I thought. However much we argue, I can't lose her too, please. The last thing I remembered was looking down to see that Sophon's manuscript was completely ruined, covered in something sticky and red. I would have to apologise, it would be hard to replace. And then, of course, I realised they meant me. Someone had killed me. I've been talking to Natalie Haynes. We've been talking about her latest novel, The Children of Jocasta, which is out now from Mantle. Natalie, thank you so much for coming in and Thanks sharing Thanks for it having with us. me. It's an important part of publication coming in to talk to you about it. We have to never stop. Never stop. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.